yeah, I mean, I was, I'm the only daughter of John and Revae Walsh. I was born not even a year after my brother Adam was uh, abducted or, what, or disappeared out of the Sears Mall in Hollywood, Florida uh, in 1981. I was born in 82 uh, into all of it. You know, my parents were starting to get involved with legislation and developing the what is now known as the National Center for Missing Exploited Children. Uh, it began as the Adam Walsh Foundation. Um, so I was really born into this. And, uh, you know, I we, they have pictures of me in strollers with politicians bumper stickers around me and you know everyone can google and see the images at the white house and with reagan and you know around all of these people ever since i was essentially born uh you know i'm in the rose garden as a baby with reagan and things like that so you know growing up in that you know there was that side but then there was also the side of what my father went into afterwards which was america's most wanted um and hunting criminals if you will uh, and, you know, that has a whole experience uh, in itself as being a child, you know, involved in it and, and in those environments and stuff. So, you know, there is there are aspects of that that are deeper and, and the trauma and the, you know, the fear that's always around. We had bodyguards, aliases, you know, followed everywhere and, and grew up in Vero because it was you know, quiet and safe, you know, my dad would travel every week so that we could be here and no one really knew, you know, again, we would tell people we lived in Washington, DC. And, you know, that's, that's interesting as a child to have to do those things and go through that. So, you know, it's always been this, you know, about John and Ravey Walsh and Adam, and, you know, we never really as, you know, I have two younger brothers. Uh, my brother Callahan is now the current um, co-host with my father on In Pursuit. Uh, he's about two and a half years younger than me. And then 12 years younger than me is Hayden. He's 27. Uh, and he lives in New York and just recently gotten started getting involved with the industry as well and in my dad's work. So, um, you know, growing up was very interesting. I, I came back, like I said, to have my children um, and to be around my family and in this small town. But when I started coming back, being John Walsh's daughter, you know, I think people naturally felt that they wanted to come to me and tell me about, you know, issues within the community. Um you know, and different things that I started asking my parents about, or my dad specifically. And, uh, and I also started looking into my brother Adam's case, uh, the National Center for Missing Exploited Children. Um, I have been an advocate for uh, family court and CPS anti-corruption uh, prior to the current situation that we'll get to uh, with my family. Right. Uh, and so, you know, I think that that was really stirring the pot and, and I didn't realize that. I thought that it would be in a crime fighting family and, and all of this that, you know, I would actually be something, you know, appreciated or respected. Um, was this and recently, was, Megan, was this recently that you started asking questions and you started to think about, gee, what, what's going, what happened really, what happened to Adam back then? Yeah, I started about two and a half years ago, finally at, you know, 36, 37 years old. I'm like, I'm going to look at these case files. I'm going to look at my brother's story um, and not just from the perspective of the narrative that we've been given as the public. You know, that's what I grew up with was the same story narrative that everyone else has had. And, and no one questions it. That's valid. No one does. You see all the work that they've done. And, and anything I say here, you know, I really do honor my mother and father. It's not to take away from uh any of the work the good work that they've done but 
we do have to address, you know, the, the issues and, and the truths that might not be so great there. Um, and, and that is there, you know, there are those questions, there are those um, potentials that we'll get into, you know, dealing with the National Center for Missing Exploited Children um, and just our child, how we're protecting children uh, in America, especially since my brother's abduction. Hello and welcome back to episode 20 of Waking Up with Mel. This is the Adam Walsh story. Adam Walsh changed my life um, for many reasons and finding out more and more truth as I have grown up has changed my life any, even more. Uh, so let's talk about this. First off, that was Megan Walsh, the sister of Adam Walsh, as you heard, and she is speaking as of 2021 about what her dad has pretty much the corruption he's involved with. And um, he's also involved with kidnapping her children through CPS, which we will get there. But right now, let's talk about um, Adam Walsh. He was born in November of 1974, and he supposedly passed away. And I say supposedly because this is my opinion. Um, and we don't really know, right? July 27th, 1981. He was uh, abducted from Sears Department Store in Hollywood, California, not California, Florida, on July 27th, 1981. Supposedly, they found his severed head two weeks later in a drainage canal alongside Highway 60 in Indian River County, Florida. His death garnered national interest and was also made into a 1983 television film called Adam. Uh, So it says that 38 million people saw that original airing and I was one of them and I would have been about five years old when I saw that. So about the same age as Adam and it hit home for me because. Basically because in the 1980s and late 70s, the world was a whole different place. And it was very naive still to the dark underlyings of what was going on with the, the you know child sex trafficking and things like that. We had no idea that that was in full swing up to the White House level at that point. And if you do not know what I'm talking about, please go back and listen to my last few episodes. So anyways, um, this case comes you know, to the, the attention of everybody. And now that I'm older, I question that because 800,000 kids go missing as of now, back then it was a hundred thousand or more. So why is it only this one case that made national, you know, uh, even to the point where it got its own TV show. And then not only that, then the dad gets his own TV show. And then he gets to start the Center for Missing and Exploited Children, which is kind of shady once we'll get down into it. So, you know, I don't think anything's on accident. And I often am curious when somebody's on TV, how or why they got there. And now I feel like the answers are more and more. Did this really happen? I don't know. You know, I don't know. I have a lot of questions surrounding this case. But what I do know that happened with this is it changed America forever. It had every parent scared that their kid was going to get kidnapped. People started locking their doors. It was a whole thing. So the way they said this case got solved was um, the this guy, a convicted serial killer named Otis Toole, confessed to Adam's murder. He was never convicted of the crime because evidence was reportedly lost and Toole later recanted his confession. Toole died in prison of liver failure on September 15, 1996. 
No new evidence has come to light since then, and police announced on December 6, 2008, that the Walsh case was closed and that they were satisfied that Tool was the killer. If you've ever looked him up, he looks like he has mental retardation issues. Um, and I'm not saying that to be mean. He literally does. And I will read now about Otis Elwood Tool. T-O-O-L-E. He was born March 5th, 1947. Um, and he died, as I just said, September 15th, 1996. He was an American v- uh, vagabond and a serial killer who... C- was convicted of six counts of murder. Like his companion, Henry Lee Lucas, Tool made confessions, which he later recanted, which resulted in murder convictions. The dis, uh, discrediting of the case against Lucas for crimes which Tool had offered corroborating statements creates doubts as to whether either was genuine siller, either was a genuine serial killer, or has or as Hugh. Hanworth suggested both were merely compliant interviews whom the police used to clear unsolved murders from the books, which I totally think they did. Uh, you know how easy it is to use these poor children who, you know, it says that he tool was born and raised in Jacksonville, Florida. His dad was an alcoholic. He abandoned him. His mother was abusive, would dress him in girls clothing and call him Susan as a young child. He was a victim of sexual abuse and incest in the hands of many close relatives. This kid went through hell, you guys. And if you went and listened to my mind control thing, he's probably likely a victim of that. But it gets gets better. He stated that his maternal grandmother was a Satanist who exposed him to various Satanic practices and rituals in his youth, including grave robbing. He claimed that the abuse began when he re, uh, began when he revealed his homosexuality to his family. He is often classified as having a mild intellectual disability with an intelligence IQ of 75. He had epilepsy, which, resu- which resulted in fre- frequent grand mal seizures. Throughout Tool's childhood, he frequently ran away from home and often slept in abandoned houses. He was a serial arsonist from a young age and was sexually aroused by fire. This poor kid. That's awful. So, you know, who knows what he did and how he even got involved without him. Actually, I'll, I'll get there. But it's, it says that he supposedly did his first crime or murder at 14 after somebody tried to have sex with him, a traveling salesman. So he ran him over with a car. Um, kind of don't blame him for that. I really don't. And back then, and I was just talking to someone about this the other day, when these kids would come out and say, hey, I, you know, what he said, it was not believed. People did not believe back in the early 80s that there was this type of evil in the world. Here in 2023, people can say, oh yeah, for sure, I could see that. But back then, no, everybody would be like, oh, he's crazy. No, he's a serial killer. Instead of looking into his life and what happened to him, you know, there's there's always a reason behind something. I have a baby and they, they're nothing but love and they are how they're treated. They mimic almost like parents, parrots, what their parents say or do. And if you're exposed to the stuff this kid was exposed to, you know, I'm not saying he's any peach. I'm not trying to say he's like, he was some good guy, but there was a reason they were able to put this case on him. 
you know, I mean, he, who, who had his back? No one. So that's what I think about Tool. Let's hear an interview from him. Yeah. 
How many, uh, best of recollection, how many police officers or detectives have you uh, done this to? I don't know. I never counted. The newspaper said that between you and Henry Lucas, uh, you're responsible for close to 700 murders. What do you have to say about that? I ain't even done one. I'm going to do 700. <laughs> Otis, you're not in here for a parking ticket. I know too much. That's, that's the trouble. How many crimes have you professed to, Otis? No, I don't know. I, I ain't counting. More than 125? I don't know. I see you smiling. Uh, there was, the law was playing games with me, so I was playing games with them. Why, why was? Why do you think the law was playing games with you? Why do you? Think? Well, uh, when they come in, they had they had everything all picked out the way they wanted it to go, because they laid it all out. How, how did they uh, do that? How did they set that up? Well, when they come in, when the, when somebody come in, got a crime or something, they gonna have so many crimes picked out to start with, and you just keep getting in the feeds you a little bit more information and a little bit more, and then you get it all, and then you double back and you put it all together, and you got it. In 1979, on a trip to Jacksonville, Florida, Henry Lee Lucas was to meet Becky Powell for the first time. Becky was the niece of Otis Toole, and the three of them started their travels around the country. Becky, at 13, began to live with Henry, and after two years of traveling, Henry and Otis suddenly separated. Becky stayed with Henry. A short time later, in Texas, in a violent argument, Henry was to stab Becky to death. The day she slapped me was just like the day Mom slapped me. So fast that there wasn't no, no stopping. That's one of the deaths that's bothered me the most in any of them at all. It shouldn't have never happened. I guess you can say she's one of the main reasons for me turning out to be what I am today. Because uh, if she hadn't died, it'd, it'd still be going on. As far as I know, I can't say positive, as far as I know it would. You, you would have continued to kill? Probably would have, yeah. Otis remembers his niece, Becky. What do you remember about the uh, the death of uh, your niece? You were very close to her? Yeah. What happened to her, Otis? Well, it's, uh, the tape said uh, Henry stabbed Henry stabbed her? Yeah. Why, why do you think Henry stabbed her? Uh, said, uh, the detective said, uh, she slapped him and, uh, he stabbed her. Where, where did this happen, Otis? In Texas. How did Janice get to Texas? Run off with Henry. Were you with Henry at the time? No. She ran off with Henry? I was in Jackson. How, how, did, how did this come to your attention? How did you find out uh, that Henry stabbed your niece? Well, uh, <coughs> I got put in jail for uh, burning down a couple buildings. You, uh, what they call, uh, you used the word before. Powerful maniac. You're a powerful maniac. You mean a pyromaniac, right? <laughs> when you heard that about Henry, did you get mad at Henry? Yeah, I was mad, you know. I said, well, if uh, 
jumped on these uh, charges like uh, they uh, feed them to me. I said, uh, I had a, uh, I had a charge in Texas, and uh, I've been fucking up myself. I don't understand. Could you say that again, honest? I said if uh, I hit hit some charges, charges, you know. You hit some charges. Yeah. But I hit the wrong state. I already hit Texas. So I hit Florida. See, I I went backwards. I didn't go the right way. I, I started off with Florida. Said so it started off with Texas. Do you believe that Henry did it? Uh, well, he's the only one left with. If uh, if you were on the street and he was on the street, would you uh, would you do something to him for killing your niece? Eddie Bookwood talks to Tom Heaton. I met Otis about 12 or 15 years ago when he was crossing through the park. He had his clothes over his shoulder. He was totally naked. And he introduced himself, and I misunderstood his name. I thought he said Alice instead of Otis. So I always called him Alice. When he went on through the park, he was arrested over at the other end of the park. Went to jail, totally naked. After you first met Otis, did you see him again? Um, I would see him in the neighborhood. He would even come by where I work, do little odd jobs for not much money. What do you do, Eddie, by the way? I'm a hairdresser. You have a shop here locally? I own my own shop now. Then I worked at 8th and Main. What's the name of your beauty parlor? Beauty shop? Powder Puff Beauty Salon. What? Powder Puff Beauty Salon. As far as, uh, as far as you know, uh, Otis didn't have a regular job, did he? He worked for Betty Goodyear. He was her maintenance man. She gave him free rent and probably a small salary. Uh, I was never afraid of Otis. If I, picked him, if I saw him on the street walking, I'd pick him up and take him downtown, usually to the city rescue mission. And I was just never afraid of him. He drank pretty heavily at that time? He always smelled like he was drinking. Did he ever say anything in your presence about uh, killing anybody? Uh, when he was in the car, if he saw someone he didn't like, he'd point him out and say, I'm going to kill them. Why didn't he like them? Just because they looked different? Or? Just, I always thought he was just a nut, so I really didn't pay too much attention to him. After reading all of this uh, information in the newspapers about the murders, uh, and as far as uh, what you've seen of Otis and when you knew him, did you think he was capable of all these murders? No, I always thought he was just a, a local nut. The first job you had, what did he do? I was a, a street hustler. Street hustler? Yeah. Well, what does that consist of? What did you do with street hustling? Well, I got out and uh, hustled people. Hustled older people. You mean sexually or for money or what? Well, I got, uh, I got forced into it when I was a little kid. Well, explain that, Otis. What, what do you mean you got forced into it when you were a little kid? Well, when, uh, when I was, uh, about, not quite six years old, uh, my, uh, father's friend, uh, forced me into it. What did he do to you, Otis? Oh, he made me, uh. He made, made me have all kind of different sex with it. When you were six? Yeah. A friend of your father's? Yeah. Did you tell anyone about it, Otis? Yeah, I told my, told my parents, but uh, they said uh, 
they don't think you would do anything like that, you know, because uh, he took all the kids to the show all the time, took them to the beach, and, uh, and what have you. You remember his name? Yeah. What was his name? Chris. And this was where, in Jacksonville? Jacksonville. How, how often did he force you into uh, sex? Well, after, uh, after about a dozen times, he got loose to it. Saturday morning back in uh, June of uh, 1983, I had a call from the uh, sheriff in Montague County. He called me and said, uh, Jim, uh, I've got an old boy in jail up here that you might want to talk to. He has uh, confessed to uh, killing two people uh, close to here and uh, has also said that he's killed a, a lot of other people all over the country. Stunned by Lucas's dramatic revelations, Sheriff Botwell called in the Texas Rangers, one of America's oldest and proudest police forces. A special task force was formed to coordinate nationwide investigations into the killings. I walked across the courthouse and I told the judge that committed these 60 murders, you know. And when I did, it seemed like the house fell in because i never seen as many helicopters and, and reporters and cars and police cars and things that started to come in there. A videotaped confession by admitted killer Henry Lee Lucas. Henry Lee Lucas, who claims to have killed over 150 women, was brought into an area at an undisclosed location. Confirmed his involvement. All right, so Henry Lee Lucas and um, Otis were supposedly lovers and um, I guess collaborated each other's um, confessions. 
that's why I'm playing Henry's uh, part in here as well. I think it's important to tie all these factors together and then get to that conclusion with where we are now. And Megan Walsh will be the one to explain that to you guys the best. So I'm going to continue on. I'm still trying to find where he actually confessed to Adam's murder, and I have yet to find that. So I'm searching. case I would go out on for, for them, you know. They would automatically pick up the telephone and call the news media, tell them that I'd solved four or five cases that day. So the news media would come running, you know. Interview after interview. I mean, I couldn't turn around unless it was an interview. And I started staying on TV 24 hours a day. I mean, it changed me. And I got so that I thought I was the biggest movie star in this country. Presley was supposed to be the biggest shot, but I think I even beat Elvis Presley. And I think I even beat, uh, what's his name, Adolf Hitler? Seemed like I was going to beat him. Because it seemed like every time they would bring a murder case in, I would accept it, no matter what it was. The Henry Lee Lucas Roadshow was in full swing. I had everything I wanted everything possible that a man could want I had I had money I didn't have before I had a colored television I didn't have before I had cable TV and I didn't have that before I had all kinds of food even stacks of cigarettes and cartons in my house that's coming from nothing it was Cherry Bowell we were like father and son me and Prince were like brothers, you know. We'd go places, we'd do things, we'd do, I mean, anything, anytime. No matter what time it was, day or night. Lizzie was about to be called into question. Estella Montoya in Corpus Christi, Texas, on March the 5th, 1981. But on the same day, Lucas was 1,200 miles away selling scrap metal in Florida. Do you think it's feasible that he could have been 1,200 miles away in Jacksonville and killed in Corpus Christi, Texas on the same day? No, sir. No. No, I do not. So how do you explain the discrepancy? Uh, I can't explain that one. Lucas was supposed to have strangled Cora Carrillo in Douglas County, Nevada. In fact, he was more than 2,000 miles away in Jacksonville, Florida, buying insurance for his car. Diana Underwood was supposedly shot by Lucas in Baytown, Texas. But Lucas was 750 miles away in Florida selling scrap metal. On the day she was killed, Lucas was in jail in Texas. Why do you think that Lucas confessed to the murder of Hermione Dufour in Louisiana when he was in fact in jail in Texas on the day she was killed? Oh, I have no idea. 29. Lucas cashed 43 weekly paychecks at the Byright grocery store in Jacksonville, Florida. But in the same period, the task force log has Lucas killing on 46 occasions in 16 different states. Could Lucas have managed all these murders 
and still have made it back to Jacksonville in Florida at the end of every week to cash his paycheck. Does it make sense? Well, certainly that, that would make sense if he's the one actually cashing the paychecks. Uh, let's look at each individual case. But from your experience as an investigator, does that seem likely that someone would go on this tour of the United States and every week wind up back in Jacksonville, Florida? Let's look at each individual case and let the individual agency determine was he there or was he at the work site or was he at a... Was he cashed the check? Prince, not me. the task force. I'm not making a point about yeah. the individual cases. I'm I, I know a what point you're doing. About you're... The, the amount of travel that Lucas is supposed to have done during this period. We're, we're getting nowhere. Do you think that it's we're getting nowhere. credible that he could have traveled that much and, and committed that many murders? We're, we're getting nowhere. In the room, talk to me. They said, now we know you didn't do these cases. So look at this. And they had a great big uh, double page. Uh, newspaper, I think. I'm not sure of that. But every place I had been, every case that I had confessed to, and where I was at, what time the crime happened, and what time I was here. They had that laid out there on the desk. And now, we know you didn't do it. When confronted with this information, he looked at us, he smiled, he said, I was wondering when somebody was going to get wise to this. Look, I got a murder case down the road here. You know, let me tell you about it. It didn't happen that way. <coughs> they would bring it to me and tell me about it. Well, that's an outright lie. Uh, as I said earlier, the task force was set up to make him available to other officers. Vic Fazell's allegation of task force misconduct brought him into direct conflict with the force's heads, Jim Botwell and Bob Prince. Only days after speaking out publicly, Fazell became the target of an FBI corruption investigation. He believes the Rangers were behind it. As a result of what I said about the task force, about Prince and Boutwell, they got together with their friends and the state police uh, who had ties, strong ties with the FBI, and they started an investigation of me. My house was searched. I was accused of burglaries. I was accused of homicides. I was accused of bribery. I was accused of being a racketeer. I was investigated for everything. I was handcuffed and dragged through the streets in public view in front of the TV cameras and everything else. But my four-year-old son sitting at home seeing it all on TV as it happened. Trial facing 80 years in jail. He defended himself against the charges and was acquitted. TV station which had repeated the Ranger FBI allegations. In that case, the jury were convinced that the Rangers had set out to frame Vic Fazell. They awarded him $58 million, the largest libel payment in American history. The task force was finally destroyed. But before he recanted his confessions, Lucas had been convicted on 10 counts of murder. It was denied. I won't stand a chance to stay alive. This is Texas. Whatever happens in Texas, no matter what it is, 
they gonna have their way. And I'm trying to fight a legend. You know that, don't you? The Texas Rangers is a legend. No convincing evidence that Henry Lucas committed a single murder. If that's true, hundreds of killers are today walking free. And the legacy of Lucas's gigantic hoax is a trail of suffering. All right, so the last part I'm going to play here is an interview that was recorded between Henry Lucas and um, Otis or Otis, whatever his name was. You're going to find this interview very interesting because basically the he's in jail um both of them are and henry's telling otis or otis to go along with everything and that he's like terry told you what to say basically and he uh otis is like uh yeah well i didn't do a certain kidnapping and um yeah let's just hear this play out I'm not going to rest until I know what's involved and who's involved in it. 
I'm involved all the way here. I want to know that. Huh? Then I want to know that. I am. I am involved. I'm involved all the way with you. All right. And I want you to tell the sheriff the truth. That's what I want you to do. I also want you to give out descriptions as to who and where. And if you, if you know where this girl's at, I want you to admit to it. Yeah. You know, I was doing a lot for that way before I met you. Yeah, I know that. I know that. I didn't do that since I was about 14 years but old. But you know you're on uh, recording now. I know that too. All right. So, I've been doing it for a long time. It's not just, uh, just that. But well, I don't care what you've done, I still care about you. Now, the organization we belong to, yeah. You know what uh, what the circumstances is of it. Yeah. All right. Now, when I start telling them full and complete, yeah, it's gonna cost me my life. Yeah. You understand that? Yeah. And it's also gonna cost you your life. Oh yeah. So I just want to know that you are a person. And this has to be honest, too, we're talking, not somebody else. That's right, it is, sir. Uh, I just want you to feel that my feelings for you is just like it always is. You want me to tell how you, how you can tell if it's me talking or not? I can hear you already. Huh? I can hear you already. Can you? Yeah. You, know, you know what you told me to make you madder than anything? Yeah, I do. If I slap tell I will it'll make you mad, won't it? Yep, it will. And, uh, See, I couldn't remember that, could I? No. I just want you to tell the truth. That's what I want you to do. And, uh, I think if I can help them in any way to solve what's being What's the same thing with me, Henry? I'll let you can tell the truth on me about go tell the truth on me. Don't hold back. All right. Uh, I'll do that. And uh, I feel that... Uh, you can do the same with me. Yeah, I sure can. Because each one of us has donated our lives to one thing. And uh, there ain't nothing in this world going to change it. Yeah. So, uh, if there's any information you can give the sheriff about this girl, or have any idea, I don't think there's no better market, but I don't know better market. Well, I guess this is what you call it, the mini market. I don't know for sure. Uh, it concerns a gray car with a red top on it. Gray car with a red top. Yeah, and... Uh, that don't hit my mind, it does It's a girl, I think, about 20 years old, something like that. Yeah, you need to talk louder. You're facing out of you know what the circumstances is. Yeah. Because anytime we walk out on that street from now on, yeah, that's the way it's going to be. It's, we're going to be known. Well, something does have to be like that, Henry. I don't live my life, anyway. Well, I have too. And, uh, but I didn't want to involve you unless you personally told me to do it. Yeah. That's something I didn't want to do. So if you tell me, I go ahead. And I go ahead. Yeah.
miserable drifter named Otis Toole twice confessed to killing Adam and twice bragged he made it up. That Adam Walsh case isn't, uh, it ain't true. What is it? I didn't, I didn't do that case. Toole was never charged in Adam's murder, and for 26 years, the search has gone on for answers. I just spent a lot of time going through and seeing, looking for mistakes, looking for clues. Crime reporter Art Harris has spent several years digging into the Adam Walsh case, and now has come to a conclusion. Your conclusion, who killed Adam Walsh? I believe Adam Walsh's killer is Jeffrey Dahmer. Jeffrey Dahmer. One of the most infamous serial killers in American history. So that was... Okay, this is something new to me. I had no clue Jeffrey Dahmer was even linked to the Adam Walsh case. Now my mind's even going more. I haven't even researched Jeffrey Dahmer ever, so... But I have researched uh, Charlie Manson, and we'll do a podcast about him in the next few weeks. So I'm noticing I'm going a little over my normal time here. So we're going to kind of wrap this up and make it a part two episode. Let's wrap this up with what Megan has said about what happened once she started to really dive into her brother's case. But first, I found an old interview of these people claiming Jeffrey Dahmer was seen at the Sears that Adam had disappeared. Dun, 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 dun. Gentlemen, we have Willis Morgan again joining us and Bill Bowen. Willis, I'll start with you. Were you contacted and what did you see that makes you believe that Adam was murdered by Jeffrey Dahmer? Okay, first, was I contacted? Uh, what time are you talking about? After 92? When Detective Smith took over the case? Yes. No, he never called me. I called him one time and I tried to tell him what happened at the mall and he would dismiss me with, yeah, right, when I tried to tell him. And even the first time he said, yeah, right, I tried to continue telling him what happened, and I get to where Jeffrey Dahmer was standing over me with this demonic look in his eyes, and I'm starting to get nervous, and he goes, ah, you're right, you're scared of him. All right, well, let me, I only have 30 seconds left here, unfortunately. Let me bring in Bill. Bill, what did you see? Well, I got out of my car at the Sears store, and I saw a man holding a little boy up in the air, screaming, I don't want to go, I'm not going, and this gentleman threw the little boy by one arm, into the van, the blue van that I saw, and sped off. And you believe that little boy was Adam Walsh? It could have been. I only saw the backside of the little boy, but I did see a protruding chin and a forehead of a man with an army jacket on, I believe. All right. Well, it's a- you know what's interesting about that Fox interview is that woman is Kim, the one that's dating Donald Trump Jr. So interesting that she knows that little link. Okay, so we'll finish this episode and start part two next week with Megan Walsh and just what happened to her when she started researching her brother's disappearance. Megan Walsh, I am the daughter of John Walsh, the host of America's Most Wanted. Um, But more importantly, I am the younger sister of Adam Walsh, who was the um, little boy with the baseball bat. Um, that was kidnapped from the Sears department store in Hollywood, Florida in 1981 and was really the uh, reason why the National Center for Missing Exploited Children uh, was created and and really what that uh, came from. So that's really who I am. Uh, And recently we have been put into this this system that we're going to be talking about today. Um, and mostly due to the fact that I was questioning things, I was starting to research, and I have been an advocate 
for uh, anti-corruption and family court, as well as child protective services. Um, and so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really here. I've been speaking out. I've been advocating for a long time. And now and now I'm personally in it with my three beautiful children. Um, and and just like just like you said, Francesca, it's uh, it's definitely making me stronger. It's definitely um, helping others in this in this fight, if you will, um, and to really expose it. I think that the masses really have, um, you know, still there's a lingering, uh, you know, misconception that it is protecting our children and our families. And sadly and horrifically, it, it is absolutely not. It is breaking them and profiting from us. And, and it is amazing, and I'm sure it's going to be amazing to the viewing audience that this man, John Walsh, your dad um, and your mother um, would do this to you and to their own grandchildren. If this doesn't literally expose what's happening when what we've what, you know what what we've been talking about for so many years, but if this in and of itself doesn't say nobody is not at risk of this vile treatment to human life, nobody. This I was born into it and. And uh, essentially weeks after I was born, uh, presented to President Reagan in the uh, Rose Garden. Um, I was later uh, taken to him at two and a half years old and, and presented with the black box of jelly beans. I have to pause that right there because the, that rung so many bells to me. According to Kathy O'Brien, the jelly beans were like some type of mind control weird thing that Reagan did. Yeah. Uh, whole nother rabbit hole, but interesting. She brought up jelly beans and things like that. So why I say that is that I have been around royalty presidents um, and, and the industry my entire life as well as Hollywood. So, um, you know, that's where I come from. I, again, was raised in it. And, uh, you know, I, I, I love my parents with all of my heart. I have always honored them, and I know that this is difficult information for a lot of people to receive and hear, um, just as it is myself in many ways and has been for the years that this has been uh, coming to end. You know, I was given the same narrative that everyone was given um, 40 years ago when my brother went missing, and uh, my brother, my father and mother stepped forward um, and were given you know, the opportunity, if you will, to advocate and to create uh, the National Center for Missing Exploited Children. Um, I've been involved with the National Center in the past, um, dealing, you know, I left the industry actually five years ago. Um, I was in art, fashion, and music. My five-year-old son is actually with me, childhood best friend uh, and current friend of uh, Kanye West. Um, so it's very integrated in terms of the industry and the elites. Um, and I left the industry to um, start a family community uh, learning farm and to be a life coach and healer to those specifically dealing with trauma and childhood trauma and, and things of that nature. As I mentioned earlier, I was advocating as well against and speaking out, you know, about exactly what we're talking about and Francesca, what you've done so amazingly for so long. Um, so that's a bit of what was going on. Um, 
and just the different things that I had started seeing within my family. Um, I was being approached by the public with questions about the National Center, um, people like yourself who had had their own experiences and, and unfortunately negative experiences, either being put on the missing and exploited list uh, or, you know, reporting themselves uh, in regards to their children being, uh, you know, targeted online and then they would call back later and those reports would be missing um we have we know we have the issues with amber alert and um you know protective parents as, as obviously you know very well and your viewers know um so it is a wide uh, you know spectrum as as we also know that this is and becomes but i started questioning things and also speaking up about the coercive control and narcissistic abuse that i have uh, endured from my family covertly um, for most of my life. Um, as we know within CPS, there's a playbook to break families. There's also a playbook to break um, whistleblowers, if you will, like myself, um, and advocates and, and doing that. So especially if you are amongst those families, once you start questioning or speaking out, they literally take everything from you, including your children. They make you desolate. They fall, they put you in prison. They lock you up in a mental hospital. They drug you, different things until, until you break, essentially. So... That's that's the situation that I was dealing with. I was speaking up about uh, the abuse as well as questioning uh, my father, his dealings um, with the National Center, their funding, uh, as well as his connections, which are very, very deep um, to Haiti, to uh, the Bahamas um, and to trafficking drugs and children. Um, and we know that that goes hand in hand. So I had started asking about that inquiring, and I was met with much adversity. Um, I'm almost 40 years old, and instead of just talking to me and, and uh, maybe even giving me their PR response from the National Center uh, regarding these situations, I, again, was met with, you're crazy and, and much adversity, especially from my father, which was very concerning to me. Um, we also have a national issue of uh, guardianship and conservatorship fraud, which this is this includes as well. It's what they're currently trying to attempt. Um, but to go back to the beginning, once I was questioning that, um, not this past Thanksgiving, but the Thanksgiving before, um, I was still trying to work things out. I had my own therapist, and I was I was trying to work things out and ask my parents to get help for themselves. Finally, um, after forty years of having their child taken and and. You know, knowing the infidelity, the promiscuity, the addiction issues and everything that I've watched them, uh, you know, go through uh, my entire life. Um, so I started speaking up about that. And I went to their home with my children on Thanksgiving um, and they started to uh, I tried to leave, actually, because they are very addicted to drama and I did not want to do it anymore. I said, we'll try again. They then told me that they were going to keep my daughter in the house and that I could take my two sons and leave if I would just leave her. Um, and I said, of course, as a mother, Francesca, you would know. I said, no, all of my children are coming. We're leaving. And uh, my father started antagonizing me again, very abusively. And my mother actually started to film me um, to set this up. And she had always kind of threatened me in the past to take my children with her money um, and then when I would address it with my father, he would gaslight me and say that was crazy. We tell you all the time what an amazing mother you are. 
Um, I was dependent on my family um, because I was building the farm and, and working towards my career. So they knew that I was dependent on them. Um, and and also, you know, my home that they had gotten for me, I did not know that my father was on half of it. So these different things that they had hidden, um, you know, and that's in terms of this does happen a lot with elite families um, that people are going to realize. So from there, um, that night, after an hour and a half, I went to take the phone from my mother's hand um, after being taunted and harassed and uh, in front of my children with my baby in my arms um, on their private property on an island. And I went to take the phone from her. And uh, and she then proceeded to take all of my hair my head tried to yank me to the floor with my baby in my hand and scratched my nose and, and bloodied my face and actually bit me um, on the arm, which, of course, today they say that I assaulted her in court. So um, from that day forward, why I say that is because I obviously did not uh, keep seeing them in public uh, or in person, excuse me. And uh, and I started speaking up, as I said, you know, I, I love you guys. I want relationship with you I want you to know my children but we need to address this abuse you're alienating um, my children from me which is a huge issue in, in these situations parental alienation should also be a crime um, and so I was speaking up and keeping our distance and kind of um, you know navigating and migrating my life away from being so dependent on them from there that was not okay and uh, they started April Fool's Day, uh, you know, ambushing me with the local sheriff, uh, and then 14 days with my children, and 14 days later, an uh, ambush again, uh, took my children under a TICO order, a taken a custody order. There was no investigation done that's required by law. Um, there was only a couple affidavits from people who are very connected to my father, um, and things of that nature, which I know people that have been watching you for years are well aware of that happens. Um, we did, they were then placed in kinship, um, uh, you know, placement with my parents. And my father has been running the entire show, no pun intended. Um, so it's been a horrific experience. This has been 10 months and they are moving to adopt my children in April after again, taking my home so that I would be homeless and couldn't get them back, saying that I have severe untreated mental illness and I was psychologically abusing my children, which we all know is the most vague and lowest burden of proof and, and what they seem to be only getting more aggressive about doing. I, I don't know when they became psychics, um, but this whole best interest of the children and this future prediction of abuse is, is very... Uh, is very dangerous for us as parents and as, as a society. And my father is a huge proponent for that. And he's a huge one that really started a lot of these narratives and issues under the back of helping us and protecting us when what we've found from him has been a lot of uh, deeper incentives and connections um, and a, basically a pay for the system, if you will. Um, so 
they've tried to gag me three times in court. Uh, they've filed sanctions against me for speaking out. And they're really making this clear that this is about, uh, you know, what I'm saying about my father and what I'm coming out with and not really at all about my children. They're weaponizing my children and they're using them um, to retaliate and to threaten and harass me. Um, no matter, as we know, no matter what you do within the system, they just keep coming more things. Um, and we're terrified. I'm, I'm devastated every day. Um, my children, my world, uh, you know, my everything. Just scholar for 20 years, specializing in Eastern religion philosophy. Um, and that's a whole other thing with the Luciferian doctrine and, and the elites. Uh, but once I ran back to Christ, it wasn't because Christ came before me. It was because I started seeing what Satan really is around us. And, and I really started um, connect, you know, questioning that. And I ran for the hills. And, you know, that, that is a major part of this. You know, it's, it's absolutely evil. And we need to start looking within what you said, what we've allowed um, what we've fallen for, you know, there's a big notion in society today about narrative versus truth. And, uh, and just like you said, my father applied to this, sadly, you know, I believed the same narrative and looked up to him in this saviorism, you know, thing that we're in these days. And at this point, um, just like many other people did and, and like they looked to other people, including the government. So, you know, that, that's a big notion to start at the root of that when we're addressing these issues and then move forward from there because it actually is going to take us to come together. And this, like you said in the beginning, is not an issue of politics, of race, of anything. That has been the blessing out of all of this horror is that we've actually been presented as a society and a humanity uh, with an issue that we all need to come together to address to correct and that will affect us if we don't and already is it already is and it's only getting more rampant we see they're going after the truckers kids i mean yesterday that's so right. mm-hmm. you know well that says shanless and that is actually the um you know the the company that they're using or the practice that they're use that they use here in indian river county florida uh to evaluate and do what you were talking about um you know, and, and they said I was actually there yesterday. It was very traumatizing. Uh, my parents have actually shocked me since I was eight years old to therapists. Um, very trauma-based mind control and telling me that I was, you know, it was my problem. I was this or that. When really they needed to deal with their own issues and about what really has happened to my brother and what did 40 years ago. Um, and that actually has to do with their lifestyle and their drug use at the time and their affiliations and my father going back and forth to the Bahamas um, and all of these things that are in court documents. You know, again, it's been 40 years that people really were given a narrative. It tugs on our heartstrings, as we've talked, you know, as, as we just mentioned in other aspects of this. And, uh, and people, then it leads people to not question. You become an authority very easily. Um, and once I started digging, we found uh, on their 2019 audit themselves, which once we started exposing, they actually removed from their website, that uh, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children receives $38 million at least a year 
from uh, from us, from our taxpaying money. Um, I'm sorry, I got a little off from the uh, from the logo here. I'll, I'll skip that, back to that before I get into the uh, the funding. But this is Shamless. This is who they're using. Um, this is happening all over. They will have one agency that drug tests, one agency that does the evaluations. Uh, things like that. And this is actually two doors down from the first doctor that they took me to and started shopping me to that I thought was going to molest me as an eight-year-old child. And I ran out of the parking lot and they made me come back in and all of that. But if you notice on that um, on that last logo, it is three squirrels. Um, and, and from the FBI declassified uh, documents, we do know that that is a pedophile symbol. Uh, the swirls right there. We have three of them. That's right. Um, you know, and, and and that also goes and includes NAMBLA, um, the North American Man Boy Lovers Association, uh, yes. which actually did put a hit out on my life um, before I was even a year old, and and I was hidden in the Bahamas for about a, a year from NAMBLA um, growing up. Now, of course, I question why exactly that hit was put out. Um, but that also goes back to Adam and uh, my brother. And in the area, you know, we know the difference between mainstream media now and what the people actually talk about and know in the areas that these things happen and the locals. And we, we know the truth. Um, but for 40 years, many people said that, you know, my brother was not taken, that my father was involved in drug trafficking, um, and, and that there was a hit put out on my brother's life. So... That has been a huge uh, narrative and, and what's been going around in South Florida for over 40 years and why people like Willis Morgan and, and others have spent decades uh, pursuing this story and trying to figure it out. Um, so I, that's, that's basically the shameless as an example for us of, of right in your face in plain sight, if you will. Um, and the connections there and how they do it. You know, you, the, also the, the talisman that's on that is actually a protective talisman. When you go in there, you know, regardless of what happens in there, they, which we're seeing as a theme. So, um, so it's, it's been interesting. Um, and, but I really do try to stick to the truth and facts and things that we can see and delineate and prove. Um, I will say that he's either dead or alive. I, I, we're, that's still up in the air, to be honest. Uh, right days after they took my children, I received a, a, a voicemail, excuse me, saying, Hi, sis, it's Adam. I'm coming home after a long time. I arrive in Hollywood. Uh, tomorrow morning, I'll talk to you soon. And so I, uh, you know, of course, through my different team and my friends and things like that, that I already had of volunteer researchers, we reached out to this person um, who I have been in contact with. And they do say that they are Adam Walsh. This also involves Johnny Gosh, if people remember the Johnny Gosh story. Um, excuse me, Johnny Gosh, people say it differently. Um, but this also involves Johnny Gosh and, and Noreen Gosh and, and, um, and the adoption system. I mean, we found, uh, we found forms that are the Adam Walsh requirements and forms for adoption, interstate, out of state and international adoption. And I don't know what my brother has to do with adoption or child abuse, but 
we see this this kid business becoming a monopoly and through the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children mainly um, being the one to be enabling and doing that. Um, I did meet the person saying that they are Adam. People will say, oh, you can just do a DNA test. And unfortunately, with my father's connections, um, these are three-letter agencies we're talking about, my father's connections. These are presidents. These are global connections as well um, and royalty. So that is not as easy. Um, and we have tried. Um, I can expand on that at a different time. And, um, you know, I do have a Twitter where we're exposing everything. But my brother could possibly be alive. This person could be him or not. He does know things uh, that others would not know that was not public knowledge. And, uh, and obviously, there's a reason. Where's the national headline, Francesca, saying John Walsh had to save his grandchildren from his crazy daughter, even? I mean, where's right, the exactly. So I think the silence and he's been in hiding and he will not, he's been told not to speak with me while he harbors my children and psychologically abuses them. He is abusing them. He is buying them. My mother, my mother has been my true abuser my entire life. He's an enabler um, and abuses in his own way, but they are absolutely abusing my children and psychologically abusing them, which, you know, is a whole topic for another time, how that happens. Um, but there is someone, and hopefully the future will show whether that is Adam or not. But he is an incredible person. Um, his story is exactly what we heard, being taken and then put directly into the adoption system uh, through Washington State, Des Moines, um, Arizona, and also experimented on. He lives as a woman today, actually. Um, so it's, it's a wild, that's a whole wild, you know, tangent from this and, and it will play out in its own right. Um, so I, I really thank everyone for wondering about, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not prescribed to any, uh, any answer there. You know, I, my brother's been dead to me for 40 years and he has just always been with me and he has been a huge force in my life. And I want justice for my brother. Truly. I want, I want the truth out and I want the public, you know, as you said, the court, public court of opinion, um, right. you know, and, and that's really profound and sharing this is very profound. Um, and it's doing, it's doing a great deal. We have a lot of people sharing this, a lot of people looking at it. And the second that you kind of get that, that open arena for people to, to talk about it, you know, that usually it's always oh, such a great guy, but the second that you don't really have that tone, you'd be amazed on people that say, oh, I had a feeling about this guy. Oh, that was a sacrifice. Oh, whatever variable, you know, that's not, you know, necessarily a good one. So um, behind you, we see Dog the Bounty Hunter. We saw Hunter Biden. How funny, the hunting that's going on. We'll go ahead and end it there where we will start again next week talking about all of this craziness. And um, guess what else this links to? Gabby Petito, the story everyone fell for, well, not everyone, but a lot of people, with symbolism all around with links to John Walsh and another foundation that's going to launder how much money? God knows. It's crazy. It, they've really thought this out and they've got away with it for so long that I don't think they realize their, their little scheme is about to fall down. And... It sucks Megan has to go through all this, especially because her kids are involved. But because of it, it's shedding a lot of light on Adam Walsh and his case and putting fresh eyes on it, bringing back old interviews where it's very obvious these people 
were, oh, it's, it's obvious to me. Okay, it's not obvious to everybody, and I do realize that. Again, don't ever take my word for it. Look it up yourself. Do your own research. Make your own conclusions. I'm not here to tell you what to think. I'm just showing you that you should think because waking up is fun to do. Thank you, Lord, for everything you do. Thank you for the people that listen to this podcast. Bless them and just let their eyes be open to what you want them to see and let them change the world because that's why you put us here. And let people roll up their rapture rugs and quit waiting for Jesus to come and occupy till he does because you gave us a job to do. And it's sad to see so many people just sitting there when you've given us a job. So bless your children protect your children because this time is going to be crazy and rough, Lord. And I'm not expecting everybody to go through this with a joyous heart, but at least a faithful one. Thank you, Father, for everything you do for us. Thank you for closure to this case that I believe you will bring, shed light upon it, give Megan back her children. And as always, the links to all these interviews will be in my description box. You will have to cut and paste them. You can't just click on them, unfortunately. Uh, That's just the way Podbeam set up. I choose Podbeam because so far I haven't been edited off of it or deleted. And uh, Anchor sucks. Anchor app, you suck. Just had to throw that out there because they did delete my podcast and erased everything I've ever recorded before. Now I'm smart and save it on my computer. But lessons learned. Um, Anyways, free speech has not been free. Let's keep it going in America 2023. Peace out, Mel.